So we're back with you again, Bucks and Brews. Um, we're, Nick and I are coming to you from the same location because our wives are sick of how loud we are. <laughs> and they can't get anything done when we're at the house. So <laughs> we're back in our new little spot here. Uh, next time we'll have a little banner over our head. We're hoping. Um, Nick's brought some fun beers, but I'm going to tell mine first. So I'm, I'm same as last week. I got peanut butter porter from Saga Talk. I got... Toasted marshmallow milkshake stout from Rochester Mills. Nick, what you got? Let me say, I uh, I took a drive this weekend to Frankenmuth, and so stopped at the brewery up there. Got a Christmas Town Ale from Frankenmuth Brewing. Uh, it literally is the most wonderful beer of the year. Uh, it's a, it's it's such a good Christmas holiday beer. Um, you know, we talked about a new banner, but one thing we want to want to talk about. Big shout, shout out to my wife. Big shout, Don. Like I I jump for joy and excitement. Uh, we got some new Bucks and Brews glasses that we're going to be able to drink out of tonight. Those are cool. Um, tonight we're joined by a, a very special guest, um, a guy who I've actually never seen uh, what he looks like until I, I friend requested him, uh, I don't know, six months ago on Facebook. Uh, I've, I've talked to him on the phone. He's, he's literally gotten me financed on 90% of my real estate deals. Um, I've given them over to David so that he can do some refinancing, some purchases. Um, but Rob Dilator, um, he's a he's a mortgage broker. Um, lender. What's that? A lender? Lender, mortgage lender. Perfect. So and you'll tell us the difference here in a minute because you know I'm dumb. <laughs> That's why we bring the professionals in. Um, but, you know, so I again we've never met. Uh, I tell this story to everybody. I was like. The, the guy that gives me the most money, I've never met. I've never shaken his hand. I, I can tell you that, you know, about his kids. I can tell you where his kid went to college. Like, I know so much about this guy. We have never met. And, it, it, you know, it's, it's been a great real estate journey because, right, it's it's not that necessarily emotional um, connection. So he, he has my best interest at heart because he wants me to keep coming back this way. So, uh, Rob, thanks so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're drinking tonight. Hey, right on. Uh, Rob Delator with Loan Depot, residential mortgage lender, Loan Depot. Uh, I don't have anything exciting that I'm drinking tonight. Uh, I'm just, I'm a cider drinker, so I've just got a Wicked Grove cider. Oh, there you go. Nice. But, yeah. <laughs> we love cider. That's pretty exciting. I was say. Don't, don't yeah, I'm, I'm a big short. cider drinker. I like uh, all the ciders, especially the fruity ones, you know, the raspberries, the peach, the mango. Um, and then you get into some of the craft beers that have the berries in them. Uh, as long as they're not super, super, super sour. Uh, uh, I, I like the fruity beers. I say, you know, I drink a lot of, I drink a lot of beer, fruity beer, ciders. I, we, uh, fruity drinks. Yeah, I say fruity drinks all day. Um, so, right, we have to start out with that first question because uh, apparently I still don't know the answer. What's the difference between a mortgage lender and a mortgage broker? Yep. Mortgage lender is uh, we're lending our own funds, so to speak. Um, so for instance, I'm an employee of Loan Depot and we underwrite fund, close and service all of our loans. A mortgage broker is usually employed by themselves or maybe employed by someone else, but they're not the ones actually providing the loan. They're going out into the marketplace and shopping your loan to different lenders like myself or other okay. lenders and getting a pay, paid a fee for doing so. Okay. Uh, back when 
we first met, well, no, I was a lender back then too. Prior to 2005, I worked for a mortgage broker. And at that time, that was the better setup than working for a bank or a mortgage lender. Uh, mortgage brokers at that time did uh, at least two thirds of all of the residential mortgage business. But uh, the housing crisis of 2008 to 2012 really put the hammer down on mortgage brokers. Um, not necessarily just the economic downturn, but all the regulation that came through the housing crisis. Uh, long story short, uh, basically now all folks have to have skin into the game. And what I mean by that is the lender is responsible for verifying the borrower's ability to repay. And if that loan goes bad, there's liability all the way up the chain. Under the old mortgage broker formula, once we did that loan and closed it and it was delivered to where we were uh, sending the loan to, um, we never saw the loan again. I mean, of course, we kept the relationships and established with the folks involved. But as far as the mortgage went, um, we had no idea where, where it was at, where it could go to, couldn't contact anyone on it, and had zero financial liability on that loan. Uh, the regulations came in, which was a good thing because now everyone has to be responsible in their lending. A lot less fraud when uh, when you might have to write a check for one hundred fifty thousand dollars on a mortgage if if there's fraud involved. I mean, yeah, the lender meaning. So there's not too many mortgage brokers out there anymore. Okay. Very very few. So uh, in the marketplace right now, really, you're talking about banks, credit unions, and mortgage lenders. Okay. Very, um, very few brokers. So that's good information to know. Um, you know, um, right. We want to, we want to bring up, I mean, you know, we talk about the old days and as I said, you were my, you were my first person um, that I went through for a loan and um, you're, you're pretty far south of me. I mean, you're an hour and a half south of me. Um, and Saint I, Joseph, Michigan. Yeah. Say, um, I went, I went to go buy my first house when I was, you know, 20 years old. Um, and the only way it was a foreclosure, but the only way I could really get financed and was like a 403 B or some type of a loan that's not even out anymore. And you were like the only person that could loan on it. And, and I don't know how I had the right person that connected me with you. They're like, nobody in the area does it, but there's this guy way down here that does it. And I was like, <laughs> I'll talk to him. So, um, you know, we, we had the opportunity back then to take out funds to do rehabs and, uh, on the property, but we denied it because I, I just wanted my mortgage payment and to pay cash for my repairs. So, which looking back was the smartest thing I've ever done. Um, but tell us, uh, I guess, tell us what you guys offer, um, in your business. Cause one of the big reasons I, I wanted you on, um, was because you, you know, you really, you can do so many different things that most people can't outside of, um, you know, the normal lending is what I would call it. Right. Um, so tell us, I guess, what, what sets you guys apart from, from other companies? Yep. And it's nothing, it's, it's nothing special. Uh, basically when it comes down to lending, uh, you have the entities involved requirements for doing a loan with them. And what I mean by that is if it's a conventional loan, you're dealing with Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. They have their own set of underwriting guidelines of uh, what qualifies 
to be a loan with them. You have programs like FHA, and, and I know from your questions, we're going to get into all these different programs later. Oh, yeah. But uh, what is different about us is that whatever the criteria is for the loan product or program, pretty much is all that the borrower needs to meet to obtain that loan, which, like I said, isn't anything special. We're meeting the criteria for, say, FHA. FHA has their regulations of what, uh, what a borrower has to meet for the criteria. And as long as the borrower meets that criteria, we're going to fund the loan and get folks into the house. Other banks or credit unions or other lenders, they'll have what are called overlays, uh, additional lending criteria on top of that. Okay. And it's all, it's all risk-based analysis. If a particular bank, credit union, or lender uh, had a lot of loss in a certain category, they're probably going to slap an overlay on top of that and try to limit their risk and not lend in that area anymore. Uh, for instance, um, investment properties. You know, a bank or a credit union may only, one of their overlays might be that they'll only finance borrowers on their owner-occupied property or second home. They won't finance investment properties. Sure. And that's just that particular lender's internal overlay or internal requirement that they adhere to lending to. And uh, we, don't have, we don't have any of that over on top of what uh, the program requirements are, which the program requirements are you know, reasonable enough to limit the risk in the lending industry. Um, we just don't have anything on top of that. Sure. I say you had, you'd mentioned FHA. Um, can you tell us, I guess, what FHA is versus uh, a conventional loan? Um, you know, even I guess throw in VA, some, some different types of loan, but what's the, you know, what's the difference between FHA and, and conventional, I guess? Yep. I know FHA, for me FHA is a, a government, uh, FHA is a government, uh, sponsored loan program and it is for, only owner-occupied purchases. So the borrower has to be purchasing a property that they intend to occupy. And uh, it's one of the lowest down payment products. It's minimum three and a half percent down payment of the purchase price. It has the most relaxed credit standards, um, allowing borrowers a second chance. You know, if they've had a bankruptcy more than two years ago, or they could have possibly even had a foreclosure more than three years ago, uh, FHA will give them a second chance. They have lower credit uh, score requirement to qualify than a conventional loan does. And the reason they're able to do all of this is it's backed by the government, so to speak. It's a government insured loan. So they're taking on some of the risk. Uh, conventional loan are Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the two government servicing agencies and lenders participating in that arena. And uh, so to speak, there's not a second person there to help bear the risk like there is in FHA. So credit score requirements are typically higher, down payment requirements are typically larger. So there's, there's not really a downside to either product or program really it would come down to which product is gonna best serve the client with where they're at at that point in time as far as credit score or funds available that they have to go towards a purchase. Uh, some of the only limiting factors, uh, FHA does have a maximum loan amount. They won't lend over a certain amount. A single family home 
uh, loan amount has to be below $331,760. So if you're trying to buy a half a million dollar home, you're not going to use an FHA loan to do that. You'll need to use a conventional loan. Sure. And now with conventional loans, so if I'm financing a million dollars on that, um, can I get it with 5% down? Not on a conventional loan. Well, not on that size. Conventional loan has a conforming loan limit as well. Uh, boy, you're putting me on the spot here. It's somewhere around the neighborhood of 520. Okay, so, yeah. You can do that with as little as 3% down under certain instances or certainly 5% down. I've, I've, I've gotten 5% from you. That was my first loan. And that was like a rocket. And that, like, I feel like you've never given me a chance to get 5% again. So I just have to figure out how to get all this. So um, once you, know, you go over I, the conforming loan limit, you're in the jumbo loan market. And typically you'll need to have 10% down in the jumbo market. Sure. Um, and now, sorry. So I know one thing I deal with a lot with you is because I try to get you to lend on, you know, my commercial properties because I just like dealing with you. But so co conventional and FHA is, is strictly four units and less, correct? Correct. Um, yeah, not right now. Sorry. Oh, you're fine. That's yep, fine. Uh, residential mortgage lending is one to four units where the primary use is residential. Okay. So if you have a property that is strictly just a commercial property or a mixed use property where there's some residential, some commercial uh, the residence portion has to be more than 51%, has to be 51% or more to still be considered residential. Sure. So, so everything that we're talking about today is just coming from my experience of being in the industry since 1995 under the residential mortgage side. I don't know much about commercial as I've never lent on commercial property. So real quick, because it's something I love to do. Uh, you said you've been doing this since 1995. Um, just so the viewers know, uh, I was seven when Rob started doing loans, uh, <laughs> uh because I have, to make everybody, I have to make everybody feel horrible. What kind of beer were you drinking then? Yes. PBR. I was <laughs> drinking pass at times. So I mean, yes, like, I graduated in 95 and, and just to let you know, Rob, full disclosure, Nick's daughter, Emerson interrupts our show all the time. All the time. <laughs> she, she, she finds herself to be a YouTube star. Like, she hey. just walks right in, starts talking, and then leaves. It's, it's great. Um, right on. So, uh, USDA versus a VA loan? Um, yep. USDA is uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture. It's the Rural Development Loan Program. And uh, different requirements for that, well, a lot of different requirements. Um, first off, the benefit of the USDA and the veteran loan are they are both zero down programs. So rural development, no down payment, veteran loan, no down payment. Uh, veteran loan, easiest thing to say about a veteran loan is you have to be a veteran to qualify for it or a surviving spouse. Other than that, there's not a whole lot of additional requirements uh, for the veteran mortgage. They don't necessarily per se have a maximum loan amount. Um, you just have to be an eligible veteran, have uh, been discharged uh, in good standing and honorable discharge. Uh, but you, oh, how do I put this? Has to be veteran and spouse. So a veteran and a unmarried significant other cannot jointly be on the loan. Oh, okay. 
So, um, rural development, zero down. There are income requirements on the rural development. You have to make below a certain income amount. And that's based uh, county by county, state by state, based off of average median incomes. A four-person family for the USDA, I think it's around the neighborhood of $84,000. So it's reasonable. It's not really, really low. And the home has to be located in an eligible area as well. And U.S. Department of Agriculture Rural Development defines the rural area. I go on their map, plug in the address, and it tells us if it's eligible or not. Pretty much it's outside of the larger metropolitan areas. Like uh, Grand Rapids is a lot larger ineligible area than I have here in St. Joseph. Sure. To say one of our, I, I know he didn't use you, but one of our claims to fame is we did an episode um on how to buy your first house and we had we had some guests on they were renting and we were talking about how to do it and i was like hey reach out to rob and uh apparently they didn't but they ended up getting a real development loan and we had them back on we talked about we talked and i was like it works you know like these guys you know say you know and they're they're out in kind of the boonies anyway so um you know and it's funny about them because john and i were talking about that later and she goes you know, TJ and Danny probably don't get a house if they don't talk to you guys. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Yeah. Say so they were, you know, being a landlord, they were like, well, you know, we have a lease and we're going to sign this. And I was like, dude, ask the seller to pay your pay off your early termination fee. Like ask. And I'm giving them like all this <laughs> advice. And they're like, really? And I was like, dude, that's the greatest advice I've given anybody in my life. Yeah. Like, yeah. Ask for this stuff. And they're like, oh, come back and they're like. Yeah, we did this. We asked for we asked for carpet allowance. We asked for them to pay off our lease, and I was like, and it worked. And I was like, yes, that was that's awesome. Yes. Well, so he, just to, he literally just to clarify stuck. too. Um, you know, they don't necessarily have to be out in the boonies. Um, it's just more rural areas. And uh, let's see, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with well, your area as well as no, mine, but so I mean, it you, would be like Dora Moline up here, yeah, or Plainwell for you know, or Plainwell, you, yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Um, you know, I was gonna say Allegan. Yep, Allegan would be. You could be, you could buy a home in downtown Allegan, which isn't necessarily rural, but it's certainly right. not Grand Rapids. Sure. Um. So it, it depends on the area. You don't have to be out in the boonies. You just have to be out of the major metropolitan area. I call anything five minutes farther or anything that's more than five minutes away from a mire, the boonies. So, right? Like, <laughs> Plainwell has mire. Yeah, Plainwell's mire is way far away, okay? So, uh, but, uh, so let's, let's get into a few of these here, Rob. So let's say I want to buy a house, Okay. How do I know what I can afford? Like I'm, I'm just starting the journey and I'm like, Hey, time to buy a house. Yep. Yep. Well, Hey, with what rents are and rents are continuing to increase just like home prices are. Uh, I encourage anyone and everyone to buy a house as quickly as possible. As long as you feel comfortable with, <laughs> yeah, I'm a landlord too. So I'm, I'm shaking my head at the same time. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, buy a house as soon as you can, as long as you feel comfortable with your ability to repay. If you feel comfortable with your job or your ability to continue to work or increase your wages, maybe it's not at the same employer or whatever it is that uh, the person is doing. You feel comfortable with your ability to earn income, buy a house. No question about it. Sure. But to get to your question, um, 
really talk to a lender, but I'll give you some basic parameters. Okay. Uh, but first step would definitely be talking to a lender, bank, credit union, mortgage lender. Uh, oh, I say we can be honest, right? Everybody give Rob a call and we'll let, we'll let you plug your, your, your email, <laughs> your, all that at the end, but you don't right even on. tell them to go to anybody else, but you, I mean, we have you on. We're so, we're so small as a podcast. We can literally plug you as much as we want. So. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Loan Depot. There you go. <laughs> but no, a good, uh, a good uh, range is you don't probably want to take on a mortgage payment, including taxes and insurance more than a third of your gross income. So let's just use some round numbers. If you're making $3,000 a month, 36,000 a year, you probably don't want to take on a mortgage payment with taxes and insurance of a thousand dollars or more. And that's always you, a good indication. You said gross income, right? Correct. Okay. So what, I mean, I don't know. It's hard for me because right. We, we talk about this all the time. Like what if, I mean, what if you have uh, child support that's coming out and things like that? Like I like to, I mean, even when I first bought mine, I guess I'm a very conservative investor and very conservative. I mean, even, even when you first let, you know, we're going to lend me money. You're like, Oh, you can get a way bigger house. And I was like, Nope, this is where I want to be. Um, you know? And so it was, uh, you know, I, I like to go, I like to go 30% of, of like your actual net. I mean, that kind of just, you know, once you actually know what the heck you actually have, I like to, I like to base things off of real things. I mean, everybody goes, Oh, in 10 years, my, my kid will fall off my child's board or, um, I'll stop being garnished. I mean, chances are if you're garnished, you're, credit's horrible in the first place, but you know, I'll, I'll stop all this stuff. So, um, no, I, I think that's great to know, like off your gross is 30%. That's a, that's a really good thing for people to, to find out here. That's under the qualifying guidelines. Sure. Now, of course, uh, your approach and the Dave Ramsey approach of 25% of your take home pay, uh, you're never going to go wrong if you're following those guidelines. Sure. Um, I was giving you underwriting qualifications. Your mortgage payment shouldn't be more than a third of your gross income. If it is, you may not qualify for a mortgage. So, of course, if you're taking that to the next step where you're doing 25% of take-home pay, you're definitely going to qualify because that's much more conservative than what the maximum guidelines are. I think that was one thing I respected about you, right? Like I I had set what I wanted told you, Hey, this is really what I want my payment to be. This is what I actually take home. And you were like, these are your numbers. Like, you know, this is what you need to look at for a house. If you're going off of these numbers, instead of what the qualification, he goes, and, and he told me, he's like, you'll instantly qualify if you're doing it off of this. Now I respected that. And I think that's what made us connect. I mean, back then was like, you know, I'd be talking to realtors and they're like, Oh, you know, get, get with this. And I'm like, this is where I want to be. Stop trying to upsell me on right. you know, like, I don't want to be a $150,000 house broke as crap like i really want to drink beer and just have a place to lay my head like you know i was young and dumb so well, and when i'm working with folks that's what throws them a little bit usually is uh the question i'll ask them is where do you want your payment to be yeah and you know dave just like you said well i don't really know yet i'm just getting started with this well what does your pocketbook tell you what does your gut tell you that's kind of where I start. Um, I'll let you know what you qualify for and you'll laugh and fall out of your chair like Nick did because he qualified <laughs> for about four times more than what he wanted his payment to be. Um, and I would never try to stretch uh, anyone higher than they should be anyhow. But uh, I always start out with where do you want your payment to be? And then I work out the taxes and insurance out of that and give you a price range to start looking to keep your payment in comfortable range. 
Well, it doesn't matter what you qualify for. It matters what you're going to be able to write the check for each month to make your payment. Well, I know when I was looking to refi, I asked Nick, I'm like, all right, Nick, what do you do? Because I have a unique situation. So he said to call Rob and I sent Rob a message. I'm like, listen, this is a unique situation. I have two houses. I have a mortgage on both. And I, I really want to refi. And he had to work with the, okay, well, what is the second loan? Well, it's not really mine, but I'm a co-signer on it. It's really for somebody else. They pay the bill. And how can you help me? And honestly, Rob has worked really hard to find a way to refinance this loan <laughs> to the point of, he's, he sends me a message. I said this to you. He sends me a message a couple of weeks ago. He goes, what's this $45 balance? I'm like, that's my Speedway credit card. He goes, yeah, we need to pay that. I pay it every month. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to have to pay that off before closing because that hurts your debt to income. Sure, I can pay anything off that you want me to pay. It was only 45 bucks, so I, I figured uh, let's not sweat it and keep yep. moving forward. Yeah. If it was $4,500, we would uh, we would have to talk a little bit more about that uh, and and adjust the, the craft beer budget. But yeah, Absolutely. Uh, we're going to adjust that by getting sponsors on this thing. So right when Frank and Muth Brewing wants to sponsor us and give us free beer, we're going to drink it down here. We're... <laughs> uh, we got excited the other day because Onside Ales liked our little post yeah, there. Something small. So, um, you know, I, I have higher interest rates, which is crazy to say because mine are actually pretty low, um, you know, from, from back in the days. And, you know, when, when you were lending out a long time ago, um, and you know, all the older people that I talked to in investing, they're like, oh, interest rates were 17% and it was cheaper to do land contracts at 10 and people were happy. And I'm like, what, what do you, like, I've only known things like, you know, six and below. Um, so I guess what affects interest rate? Like I, I see every day, it seems like it's, oh, Hey, new lowest interest rate. And all my friends are over here getting 2% and I'm, you know, sitting at three, three and a quarter and getting ticked because I'm like, Oh, I should refinance because I could do, you know, <laughs> so. Oh, man, a whole lot of things go into interest rate. We could talk for hours about that. But uh, to, to get down to the nitty gritty, basically, it, it comes down to the mortgage-backed security market. What happens after uh, someone gets a mortgage is those mortgages are pooled and then they're bundled together and are basically an investment. Uh, of, you know, multi-million or multi-billion dollar scale, whether it's an FHA loan, a conventional loan. And uh, the mortgage-backed security market uh, has a lot to do with where interest rates are. Of course, economic uh, items going on. The COVID crisis has affected interest rates. Inflation affects interest rates. Uh, but we've been stable on interest rates goodness, since probably 2005 in a three to 5% range. You know, the days you're talking about, that was before I got in the market as well, too. Okay. When I first got in this business, uh, the first mortgage I wrote was 10%. And then everything else was nine, eight. We broke out the party hats in 1997 when we hit 7% and refinanced everybody that had ever gotten a mortgage in the previous 20 years. Sure. Uh, but we've been in a stable, low interest rate environment and should continue to be there uh, for the foreseeable future as well. I mean, I don't think 
we would see double digit interest rates in our lifetimes going forward. But, you know, you never know, but there's a lot more stability going on in the marketplace than there was 30 years ago when we had those interest rates as well, too. They're low right now because because of the COVID crisis, because of the economic crisis followed by the COVID crisis, but also uh, because of uh, the uncertainty in the bond market going on as well. Uh, bonds ultimately are what determine interest rates. <clears throat> That's good to know. I mean, you know, it's like, it's, you know, it's funny back in the day, I, I guess it's, I've never, I never knew that. Because back in the day, you know, older people are like, you know, they give you bond certificates and all that. Because like, right, they're going to be worth stuff. And now everybody laughs at you if you're going to invest into a bond or give somebody a bond. So, because um, the yields are so low on them. Yeah. Um, so what's people talk about this? What's the difference between your interest rate and your APR? Yep. Uh, great question. Um, that's our wonderful government uh, helping consumers understand the lending process. Uh, requiring what's called an APR, an annual percentage rate. Uh, your interest rate is the note rate. So when Nick asked me, hey, what's my interest rate if I buy this house and I tell him it's you know 2.875, that's your note interest rate. Sure. The APR is going to report higher than that because what they do to calculate the annual percentage rate is all of the costs associated with obtaining the mortgage the closing costs, the appraisal charge, the title insurance are wrapped into that. And that's what's called your finance charge. And that's divided out over the term of the loan. And it shows you a cost for borrowing, uh, but that's not the actual amount you're paying because you're not financing your closing costs. You're, you're, paying those, you're paying those in cash or the seller's paying them if we structure it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> so in a roundabout way, you're financing it through the seller and a higher sale price, but that's for a later discussion. Say, uh, I'll finance mine all the time. <laughs> long story short, interest rate is your note rate. APR is the total cost for borrowing that amount. So if sure. you're comparing with other lenders and both of our note rates are 2.875, my APR is 3.19 and the other lender is 3.45, uh, they have some additional costs in there um, that I don't, or vice versa. Um, sure. That's, um, that's how you're able to compare across different lenders. So, no, that's, I see, it's actually- But it is confusing. It is very confusing. I mean, even for somebody, somebody like me who's done it like a million times, whatever, like um, I didn't understand that it was all this stuff in rolled into it because like usually usually i call and i'm like hey how much for your you know how much for your title work how much for all this and they're like oh it's just rolled and no like i need to know how much this is all going to cost because i already have a guy that's going to do all this and then i just get tired of all these questions over here so i just go hey rob just write it <laughs> um you know it's, so the it's higher the spread from the note rate to the apr is more cost sure no that makes that makes total sense um Hey, so when I when I tell my friends to hop on on Google and type in mortgage calculator, um, you know, I put in let's call it a hundred thousand dollars and it and it spits you know four and a half percent interest because I always I always aim high right because I want people to be crazy, um, but like it just pops out it pops out uh you know let's call it five hundred and eighty bucks a month but then 
I get a hold of you. And for some reason, my money is always more. So I guess what goes into a mortgage payment itself? Like what's all rolled into that thing? Yep. Yep. Mortgage payment uh, has uh, your principal and interest payment, which is what we were just talking about. It'll have one twelfth of your property tax amount. So that'll vary depending on the subject property, but to get qualified, we're going to use a baseline, you know, an average amount for taxes in the price range that you're looking. Uh, it'll include one twelfth of hazard insurance premium, home insurance premium. Just like with your car, you have it insured in case there's an accident, your house is insured. Not necessarily in case there's an accident because your house isn't moving, but there might be a fire or there might be a tree fall on it or wind damage. Uh, so you're going to have insurance on the home. And then depending on the loan product or program, there might be private mortgage insurance wrapped up in your payment as well, too, which I know we'll get into what is PMI and why do I have to have it and how do I get rid of it as quickly as possible. Um, we're, we're in it right now. Why don't you, because I had it for a minute and I was tired of it two seconds into it. So, <laughs> yep. Uh, but back to the payment. So that's what your mortgage payment includes. When you're on Zillow.com uh, and plugging around numbers and it shows you, you know, this house is this price, your payment is this amount. Typically, it's only showing you the principal and interest portion payment for that house, assuming a 20% down payment. Sure. So that's why it's always more because most folks are not putting large down payments down at these low interest rates. Sometimes it may not make sense to do that borrow more money, keep more of your cash, and either invest in more real estate or pay off some debts somewhere else. Uh, maximize your, your budget and your monthly cash flow. Sure. Um, so payment is taxes, insurance, may or may not have mortgage insurance depending on the product. Uh, getting into what PMI is, uh, PMI, private mortgage insurance, that is a part of your mortgage payment when you have less than 20% down. And it'll depend on the loan program. Uh, the amount will vary based on the loan product. FHA has a different mortgage insurance amount than a conventional loan does. It can be risk-based. Uh, so if you have a lower credit score, you might pay a little higher PMI than if you have a higher credit score. And then some loan programs don't have any mortgage insurance at all uh, if you don't have 20% down, for instance, we were talking earlier about VA loans and rural development loans. Both of those products do not have PMI or mortgage insurance. They have other things in there that help um, reduce or spread the risk on those products and programs, which I'll explain in a moment, but they don't have a PMI, so to speak. Uh, so when you have less than 20% down, you're going to pay mortgage insurance. It's the easiest way I explain it is it's reinsurance that we as the lender are required to carry on the mortgage in case there's a default. And I don't mean you personally, the borrower, in case there's a default in general, um, we're not on the hook for the whole entire loan amount because we've had it partially insured for the 20% we didn't require from you to put down. Okay. So once yeah. you pay the loan down, 20% from the original amount you borrowed on a conventional loan, that mortgage insurance will be removed, assuming a positive payment history. If, you, if you're habitually delinquent on the mortgage, they don't have to remove the PMI, no matter how much you've paid it down. Uh, and then on the FHA loan, the PMI is on there for the life of the loan. So uh, part of uh, your budget structure will be if you're in that mortgage still after you've built up 20% equity, it's going to make sense to refinance probably to get rid of the mortgage insurance. 
Sure. I said, I did that. I did that kind of right away. Yep. Uh, <laughs> well, you had instant equity from buying that foreclosure. It was, it was yeah. almost double from what you paid for it at the time. Yeah. I say that was, uh, and you know, my first one wasn't FHA. My, my second property actually was FHA, the duplex that I moved into. And, um, I had equity in that right away, but I was still, uh, I, I was, I almost backed out of a loan, out of a loan because of PMI. I'm like, I'm not paying for something that doesn't do anything for me. I was like, this is horrible, but, um, well, it does something for you in a roundabout way. It allows you to buy it without putting a whole lot of money down. Yeah, uh, no, I, I get what you're saying. It's not doing anything for you other than allowing you to put less money down. And that was the thing. Like, I, I had to put three and a half percent down on my second property after I put 5% down on my first, like, I mean, within six months, I literally had two properties and I was less than 10 grand into both. I mean, it was, it was crazy. You know, it was, it was like a, a light went off in my head. Like, wow, this is pretty easy. And this is how this works. Like I have to work three weeks and I have a down payment. Um, and then I quickly realized that that stops once I stop moving. <laughs> so, um, so one of the things that we might hear about when we're looking into this, Rob, is locking in your interest rate. What does that mean? Yep. Uh, when, uh, when you get a purchase contract or even on a refinance, uh, whatever the rate is that particular day, you can lock in on that rate, meaning that is your rate, uh, no matter if rates go up or down through the process until we get to closing. And I know that was one of your questions as well, too. How long does this whole process take? Yep. In a normal market, it should take about 30 to no more than 45 days. Um, and I'm still seeing that currently now, but turn times are much longer just because mortgage volumes are tremendously high right now with these low rates for both purchases and refinances. Um, but more than just the volume market that, that lenders are trying to manage, it's um, getting appraisals back in a timely fashion. It seems uh, appraising real estate appraising is a dying uh, trade. We don't see a whole lot of folks going into it. There is a nationwide shortage of appraisers. I think I heard a couple months back, the average age of appraiser in the United States was 59 years old. Average. For anybody watching, that was literally a, hey, if you want a guaranteed job, <laughs> making some money, here's something to go into, right? Like, we're in Grand Rapids and, you know, it's known, yeah. for, it's known for medical and everybody was, it's funny because my wife went in, she's an occupational therapist and, oh, hey, this is the big thing that you need. And then she got out of her school after four years or whatever the heck it was, was like, oh, these jobs are already filled. We need nurses now. And then we need, you know, so, but no, that's all. How long do you have any idea? I know you're not an appraiser. Do you know how long it takes to become an appraiser? Yeah, I believe, now don't hold me to this, but I believe from talking with some of my appraisers over the years, uh, the, the requirements have gone up significantly since the mortgage meltdown. Prior to that, I don't think you had to have any formal schooling. Um, but currently, I believe the requirements for an appraiser is you have to have a four-year degree. Doesn't really matter what in. And then uh, I believe you are a apprentice underneath a licensed appraiser for 2000 hours, I think. So that's usually about two years that you're working underneath somebody as you're learning the trade. And then you can become a licensed appraiser. And then there's different levels of appraisers as well too. There's licensed appraiser, there's a general appraiser, 
I don't know what the different requirements are other than education and liability levels and certifications uh, sure. across those, but um, it's, it's not super challenging to get into the real estate appraising industry. Uh, I mean, I'd have to go back to school and actually like, I, I tell people I get into real estate because I'm uneducated. Like I don't have a college degree. I, you know, I went to school for bowling. That's, they <laughs> offered me a half ride scholarship to bowl. And I was like, okay, here we go. Um, <laughs> man. So if you're not using your college degree and you want to make real money in a job that's looking for people, uh, you know, become an appraiser. That's what I would say. I would certainly think so. Cause they are in super high demand right now. Um, with the COVID crisis, a lot of them are choosing not to work right now, creating an even greater shortage. Um, some of them are refusing appraisal orders if uh, they have to enter the homes. So different, different appraisal requirements, depending on the loan, will have, um, some of them can do a drive-by appraiser appraisal where they don't actually enter the home. They do stop at the property, maybe walk around from the outside, uh, but they don't actually enter the home. And some of them are only doing those types of appraisers appraisals right now. Um, others that are requiring a full entry into the home. Yeah. I mean, Hey, we're in the midst of the COVID crisis. There's, there's higher risk. Uh, some appraisers are choosing to take less of a workload. Some have retired early and uh, we definitely need a lot more real estate appraisers. So yeah, if you're watching or listening, I think it'd be a great career to get into. I say, you know, I'm not going back to school, but I really should become an appraiser. I mean, I do my own appraisals now, right? BPOs. I'm not even a broker, right? Like my, right, my own. Right. I do a Nick opinion. That's what I do, right? This might be worth that. I'm hoping. Here we go. Um, well, and you're, you're using the same basis, uh, financials to come up with that. What properties, similar size, style, structure have sold within the recent six months? Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much the same information appraiser is using. Uh, without a four-year degree, I just saved 120 grand by, you know, so by educating myself. Um, you know, we talked about mortgage rates quite a bit, um, you know, back a little bit a little bit of time ago, even now, I guess I still have some friends that have adjustable rate mortgages and fixed rate mortgages. Can you tell me what the two are and the difference between them and if one's a better product and why? Yep, you bet. Uh, fixed rate mortgage means whatever the note rate is that you execute at application and or lock in at is what your interest rate is over the term of the loan. So you get a 30-year mortgage at 2.875% you're paying 2.875% compounded interest over the 30 year life of your mortgage. It's never gonna change. Unless you're smart and start paying off your mortgage early, the rate won't change, but you'll pay your house off early. So. Oh, absolutely. It's only to be 30 years, people. <laughs> so. Absolutely. And then an adjustable rate mortgage um, is, is kind of what, uh, what the name implies. The rate is not fixed. It will be, stable for a certain period of time and then it will change either up or down depending on what market factors and what the um, basis uh, that your adjustable rate mortgage follows. So I'll give you an example, um, most common type of adjustable rate mortgages are the three-year, the five-year, or the seven-year. So what that means is your rate is fixed for three years, if you're doing a three-year adjustable. Upon your 37th payment, 
three years, 36 months, same interest rate. Upon your 37th payment, your note rate can change either up or down, depending on what market forces are doing at that point in time. Sure. And depending what they are as compared to when you first took out the loan. And sometimes there's caps on those as well, too. Um, your interest rate on that 37th month sometimes might not change more than 1% up or down, or there might be a 2% cap. And then usually there'll be a lifetime cap on it as well of 5 or 6%. So let's say you're at a 3% arm right now, and if it had a 6% cap, it means that's not going to go over 9% over the life of the loan. But market interest rates are going to have to be at 9% or more for your rate to go up that high. The, the mortgage rate is floating over the term based off of the underlying financial factors, typically in the bond market or some type of index. And that is what's determining the interest rate. So what do you know what an ARM is at right now versus uh, a fixed? Yes, uh, not much different than the fixed at all because both are super low and the margin between the two are virtually non-existent right now. Okay. Um, I haven't, uh, I haven't just because it, it doesn't make sense to. Uh, back when interest rates were, you know, four and a half to five and a half percent, you might have gotten a percent or a percent and a quarter, or even up to a percent and a half lower doing an adjustable rate. That's a big enough, depending on the loan size, to, to, to make a difference. Uh, right now, with virtually no difference between an arm or a fixed, maybe an eighth or maybe a quarter percent, it just it doesn't make sense to not take that fixed rate, because uh, I don't think you're ever going to adjust lower than where we're at right now. Your adjustable is probably only going to go higher once sure. we find out what our new normal is and we get through this COVID crisis and, you know, rates are back in the three to four, certainly no higher than 5% range. I mean, fundamentally, that's where we probably should be right now. It's just the economics determining lower rates right now. Mm -hmm. yeah. They will go higher once we get through this COVID. Okay. Listen, that's good to know. I mean, if anybody's thinking about refining, um, right, you know, you're, you're thinking before the end of COVID, you should refi? You're in the, yeah, you're in the market to refi now. Okay. So closing's coming up. What do I need to bring? How much do I have to pay? <laughs> what do you need to bring and how much you need to pay? Uh, well, what you need to bring, of course, is yourself. Uh, possibly to closing with uh, with COVID, uh, we have a lot of hybrid situations going on right now. When I refinanced my mortgage back in uh, in May, the closing agent came to my house, rang my doorbell, set my closing package on my doorstep. She went back to her car. I went out, grabbed my package, came inside, sat down at the dining room table. Uh, she FaceTime called me. She had me set the phone where she could see me sign everything. I signed everything, put it all back in the envelope, set it on the doorstep, came back inside. She got out of her car, picked up my package and took off. Wow, <laughs> was okay. Pretty wild. Um, but typically on a purchase, um, you're gonna go to a title company to close because the seller is selling a house, you're buying the house. Uh, there has to be that third party to transfer title and do all the things that they need to do on a purchase. So normally you're going to go to a title company. You'll bring yourself, you'll bring your driver's license, 
Sometimes you'll need a second form of ID. That second form of ID can be anything with your name on it, either social security card, passport, work ID badge. Um, I've seen people lay their credit card down and the title agent, you know, doesn't take a picture of it, but scratches out the number to, to show that that's you. Um, and you're going to bring your funds needed if you need any. Some of these loan programs, you don't need a whole lot of money to purchase. Uh, probably the instance with your folks that purchased on the rural development loan. Uh, if I have a client using a USDA rural development loan and the seller's paying all their closing costs, usually they don't need any money at closing. Or if they do, it's very minimal. Or they may even get money back at closing up to the amount they put into the transaction, their earnest money deposit. Sure. Which is crazy to think of. Who buys a house and gets money back? <laughs> yeah, but it's happens all the time. Uh, no, and that's that's a that's a that's a way to think about it. I mean, right? You can you can buy something and actually have somebody pay you some money. Um, well, you're getting back your money in the form of their earnest deposit because you can't get back more than what you've put in. Sure. But you can structure the transaction where it's literally costing you no money out of pocket to buy. And uh, if you can make, if you feel comfortable making the monthly mortgage payment, that's a fantastic way to structure it. You know, if you have three, four, five thousand dollars saved up towards a house, it's not a lot of money, but it's enough to buy a house. But uh, boy, as soon as you become a homeowner, Nick, uh, you're going to have to spend some more money, aren't you? Oh, uh, they're always something. A lot of money, right? Like. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why people own homes. I tell people this all the time. Like, right. I don't know why you own a home. It's the dumbest thing you've done. Right. It's an expensive bank account. Um, you know, <laughs> How many do you own? A lot. But people tell me it's worth it. Right. But I still haven't figured out why. Um, you know, we're we're in a spot right now. And I think a lot of people learn from the 2008 to 2010, 11, whatever it is, that crisis there um, where. I feel like appraisals are kind of, they're coming back a little lower, like, or, you know, um, or close. So what, what happens if my house doesn't appraise for the value I'm trying to buy it for? Yep. Well, from a lending standpoint, uh, if we get an appraisal back low, uh, less than the purchase price, then boys, it is difficult. I'm not going to lie to you or kid you. It's difficult and challenging to get a reconsideration of value. There's going to have to be a material defect on that appraisal in order to get it changed. And what I mean by material defect is um, a mismeasurement. The house is bigger than what the appraisal shows, or uh, maybe the appraiser did not use more reasonably available comparable sales that help support the purchase price. It could be a number of items. Maybe the adjustments from the comparables were not reasonable or uh, should have been adjusted more or less. There's a process that you go through. Basically, what uh, what has to be done from my standpoint is I have to submit to uh, the appraisal management service three additional comparable sales that support the purchase price. And these are sales, not active listings, not pending. These are closed sales. Sure. And I get those from the realtor because I'm not an appraiser. I'm not a real estate agent. I'm well-versed and knowledgeable enough in values, but uh, I usually get those from the real estate agent. They, the AMC will internally review them if they see that there's merit there. 
then they will put those to the appraiser and say, hey, why didn't you consider these or can you explain or can you advise further? Uh, the reason it goes through the internal round first is, uh, you know, let's say you've got a 1200 square foot, three bedroom, two bath ranch. And one of the comparable sales uh, that you're submitting for reconsideration is a 2,400 square foot by level. <laughs> That's not a similar size, style, and structure. It's a completely different house. Um, that one is not going to be considered for value. I mean, it may in real unique circumstances, which we don't have time to go into here, but pretty much you're wanting to look at other ranch homes similar size style. So, I, I think I remember my first house, you know, it's a, it's a farmhouse in the middle of a city. And I, I swear to you, it's like they, they did a two bedroom. I have a five bedroom, two bathroom. They did like a two bedroom, one bathroom house, a four bedroom house. Like it just, it was nothing comparable like to, to what I was owning because there's, there's nothing else that's going to sell just like it. So they're, you know, yeah. they were like, here, these are some numbers that we kind of came up with. Um, you know, so I, I, you know, I know that we talked about one when I was going for, you know, you can do a reappraisal if you want and then hire another company, um, to do a third, a third appraisal to try to get them to meet in the middle. Well, possibly if you can only do that, if the lender determines the existing appraisal is not accurate and can't be used. Okay. And that's, that's rare. Um, hey. I get into rare situations all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, it's not just a, let's say, let's say we're working together. You're buying a house. The appraisal comes in low. Hey, Rob, send someone else out there. Let's get a second appraisal. Sure. I can't do that. There has to be merit as to why uh, a second appraisal has to be done. 15 years ago, 10 years ago, yes, that could be done. Since the HVCC rules, which stands for Home Valuation Code of Conduct, uh, came out, um, there are, there are industry guidelines and standards to the appraisal process. And there's a formal process that you go through to get a reconsideration of value. And it's challenging, but it can be done more often than not, though, unfortunately, uh, the appraised value stands. And usually that means, unfortunately, the seller's probably taken less for the house and just come down to the appraised value because, you know, how do you, how do you release someone from a purchase contract and expect that the next person coming in to buy it is going to be willing to pay more? Sure. What Challenging a situation. Cause again, it's an opinion of value and two appraisers may view the same house and have a different value. So it, it is still one of the areas of our industry that could probably use a little further refinement uh, so that it, that isn't happening. And when all these people are watching super frequently. Yeah. When all these people that are watching to become appraisers, like just know, like we, we rely on you to make it worth a million bucks. Um, <laughs> no, so, um, you know, I, I think that's, you know, that's a big, that's a big thing to me is like appraisals. You know, you said it exactly. Like the, the seller usually has to come down on the price because somebody said, this is what it's worth. Um, you know, now, is there any other way, I guess, besides the seller coming down on price that I can well, still- Well, the buyer can pay more. You know, the buyer can pay the difference if the seller holds their ground and say, I'm not selling it for less than what we've agreed upon. And let's say it appraised for 10,000 less. The buyer can come in with that additional $10,000 if they have it 
And if they want to, if they still want the house, and that has happened, I have one right now uh, that we're closing on Thursday, uh, the house under appraised by $12,000 and uh, buyer and seller negotiated back and forth, back and forth. They met in the middle. So uh, the buyer's paying $6,000 more than what the appraised value of the house is. And they have to, now I can't finance that 6,000 because it doesn't show the value. I have to bring all 6,000 in cash. Correct. Okay. In addition to your down payment. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so down payment. <clears throat> now, so does my down payment go up because of the new purchase price? Sort of. Okay. Um, let's use some round numbers so we can all do it in our head. Let's say the original purchase contract was 110,000. Yep. It only appraises for 100, 10,000 less. And you were doing a 20% down loan. So you were borrowing 80% of 110,000 originally. Well, now, since it's only worth 100, you're going to still put the 20% down off the 100 to avoid PMI. Yep. And pay 10 grand. So now so you're I'm at like, like 32,500. Yeah, like 32,500. That's crazy. Okay. Um, yeah, that's... Because your um, loan to value structure all now starts based off of the appraised value. Doesn't sure. matter what the purchase price was, everything over the appraised value is uh, out of pocket. And, and for the people that, uh, that buy like that, you're the real MVPs to keep raising prices of houses. Um, so my next house can appraise for lower. Um, <laughs> so that way they have well, a comparable. All, all of this uh, is, is rare um, currently and has been for the last several years, um, only because you know, the realtor is doing their market analysis. They're doing the, the Nick value before they list the house. It doesn't make sense for a real estate agent to spend time marketing a property if it's not going to be worth the price that they've listed it for. So it's not as common for properties to not appraise uh, since the mortgage meltdown. As when we were in and through the mortgage meltdown, it still wasn't super frequent then, but it did happen. And a lot of the issues that arose during that time frame, and we got a lot more reconsiderations of value during that time frame as well, uh, or just because things things were different. Uh, for instance, you know, you're buying your house, and across the street and down the road and on the next block are three foreclosures. Well, that house that's foreclosed is typically selling at at least less than seventy cents on the dollar. That's the reason for it being a foreclosure is a buyer comes in and assumes all the risks. They don't know if the water's running. They don't know if the furnace is working because all of that's shut off. Um, thus the buyer is assuming all the risks. They should be paying less for the property, right? Yeah. So an appraiser would use those because they were close. They were similar um, in a lot of the subdivisions, you know, where they only do three or four style homes. They're, they're throughout the whole entire subdivision. I mean, you can't get a better comp than the exact same home Sure. Down the street. But if that's a foreclosure, it's selling at 70 cents on the dollar. So the biggest argument we had through the mortgage meltdown in valuation is, hey, you have got to make appraiser. When I say, hey, appraiser, you have got to make greater adjustments. You can use that foreclosure home, but boy, you've got to make further adjustments off of that when comparing to this owner occupied home that has a seller disclosure that's saying the furnaces were the work's fine. I replaced the roof three years ago. You know, this is a move-in condition house where the foreclosure down the street might not necessarily be. 
Sure. Um, so as long as they're making the appropriate adjustments from those, uh, it's still inaccurate comparable, but it has to be looked into and adjusted further. You know I, what I mean? Yeah, no, and that, that, that makes perfect sense because I mean, um, right. You don't know what's work. And those are the most expensive things, right? Like when you bring up seller disclosure, right? Like it's usually the information that the, the owner knows about the property, right? Like we know that roofs go, you know, last 20 to 25 years, right? We know that water heaters last, I mean, now two years, but like, you know, they're supposed <laughs> to last eight years. Um, right. So we, over time, we know how long things should last. And so that's right. If you have a, a furnace that is, 50 years old, I mean, numbers really say literally any day, it doesn't matter yep. what day it is, any day that thinking, well, could it last another 100 years? Sure. There's a small possibility, but like, really, like the value isn't there. There's nothing to it. Like You should plan to, to buy that. So um, yep. right when the, yep. when the seller says, hey, this is a brand new roof, the, the person, the appraiser can go, okay, hey, this is one, you know, not even a year old, it's brand new. It, it it's going to last you 20 years. The value is there because somebody's, somebody's done that work for you. Um, you know, I just had the weirdest thing happen to me today. Uh, somebody was trying to do an appraisal um, and they wouldn't do the appraisal until we turn the water back on the foreclosure. Like, so, right. I mean, it's, everything's labeled. Hey, it's been winterized. There's nothing on it. And they wouldn't do the appraisal until the water was turned back on. So I, I thought that was, I thought that was yeah. insane. So, well, it depend on the loan product the buyer is purchasing with. If it's any of the government products, the USDA, the VA, the FHA, it has to be on. The appraiser is required to verify the heat source is working, the water is working, the plumber, the plumbing is, you know, they flush the toilets, they run the faucet. Now, they're not guaranteeing it's going to work. Just at that moment in time that they walk through the house, they visually saw these items working. Sure. So maybe it was for the loan product or even on some of the conventional loans as well, too. Um, you know, the property has to meet minimum property standards and some appraisers will want to see those utilities on. Sure. No, I say that, that's good to know because, I mean, yeah, they I don't know what loan product they're using. I just know I was told to to make it happen. And um, I just thought that's it was not uncommon unless it's a cash or a uh, or a conventional loan. Sure. And, and that's what I'm, I'm so used to, you know, now I'm so used to, right. Everybody paying cash or hard money or something like that for these loans. Um, let's say when, you know, you talked about refining, you know, at 7%, everybody jumped for joy. Um, you know, when is a good time to refi? How do I know? I mean, I I'm telling you here, you know, I'm at three and th three and three quarter percent on some of my loans. Um, you, when is a good time for me to, to contact you and refi my loan? Yep. Depends on a lot of factors. Uh, and it's not just interest rate. Um, although that's usually what largely determines when a good time to refinance is. But there could be a lot of factors into that. Um, uh, what we talked about earlier, if you have 20% equity built up in your property and are paying PMI, it might make sense to refinance. Uh, I have had folks um, who have refinanced in the past for higher interest rates, but it made financial sense to do so. They were at a lower rate, they refinanced to a slightly higher rate, pulled cash or equity out of their property to do numerous things, whether it was buy other properties, Nick, or uh, do improvements, or pay off debts, or put the kid through college, 
uh, or whatever the case may be. Uh, but a good rule of thumb, as far as just looking at from interest rate to interest rate, uh, usually if you're paying more than 1% of what the current market interest rate is, you should at least take a look at the numbers and see if it makes sense. Um, if you're more than 1%, it probably definitely makes sense. But if it's around that 1% figure, uh, take a look and see if, if the numbers work. Uh, at the same time, what I like to do with my clients uh, are take a look at the difference in interest rate, but also look at a lower loan term. I have a gal that uh, just refinanced three, three months ago. She bought her house uh, mid-2018. I think it was maybe August of 18. So two years ago, property went up in value nicely. She must have been talking with Nick before she bought it to, to see that it was a good buy. Smart people. And uh, she's at 30 years. She had a great rate. It was in the 3% range. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was in the threes. Uh, but we were able to refinance her to a 20-year mortgage in the upper 2% range. And her payment went up like 12 bucks a month. Sure, say, and Non-existent. So I mean, we, she, was we able know. To, she was able to shave eight years off the term of her loan, lower her interest rate, and not change her payment at all. It was an absolute no-brainer and made a ton of sense to do. Well, I think that's what David's doing right now. I mean, you know, he bought his a while ago. He's doing a refinance. Yeah, I'm going to be up about a hundred bucks a month, but I'm cutting eight years off my mortgage, seven <laughs> yep. years off my mortgage. Right. So, like, it just, you know, I mean, the no little brainer. bit, of, the little bit of money is just making sense right yeah. now. I mean, um, right when he talks to me about it, you know, he's like, "Hey, what are you thinking?" I'm like. Dude, eight years of your life, like, think about that. Like, you know, you, you remember how fast your kid turned eight years old. Like, that's how fast this is going to, like, yep. you'll, you'll get to that yep. retirement level. You get to that next step. I mean, um, you know, when when Rob and I talk, it's, hey, Nick, you know, you, you, you're you a long-term player. Like, you know, hey, let's keep these things low. And, you know, so I, I keep my stuff very low all the time. But I, I do feel like there's going to be a point. Um, we talk about 30 years and refining into 15. Yep. Um, so... That, I guess that's our next question is like, how many years can I, can I uh, finance for? I mean, can I do a 27, a, a 12 year, uh, a rent? Like, is there, is there set things that I have to do? To some degree uh, with myself, um, you're going to be doing fixed standard products and programs. So 10 year, 15, 20, 25, or 30. Okay. Only because those are what the mortgage-backed security pools the mortgages in, and we get the Fannie or Freddie insurance or FHA or whatever the case may be. Uh, I'm not able to do a 27.5-year mortgage. Uh, some of the banks and the credit unions are. Uh, they'll just refinance you based on where you're at right now and take the lower rate and leave your loan term exactly the same because they're not having to bundle and put that into a mortgage pool because it's their money that they're lending and they're not delivering it to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. So they'll have different requirements. They'll probably have a lot tighter underwriting standards, um, which may or may not be an issue depending on the borrower. I mean, Dave, you're, you're a qualified borrower, no, no issues there. Um, but so yeah, to answer your question, Yes, there are some fixed standard products, 10 year, 15, 20, 25, or 30. Although okay. some banks or credit unions may be able to do whatever you request. No, and that, I say, and that's, that's good to know. Cause you know, um, you, you hear about, you know, usually I guess the normal things that you hear about is uh, a 15 and a 30 year, right. That you can do yep. in between. And that's uh right. So, I mean, 
the people that, you know, they, they know that they don't want to spread themselves too thin, but like you could do a 25 year and just instantly cut five years off for, I mean, you know, 50 bucks more and you've guaranteed yourself five years off. If you're not that overpayer, stuff like that. I think that's still an option for some of our, our people listening and people viewing. Definitely. Like that's, that's really a, a cool thing. Um, so here's a question for you, Rob. Probably my last question. I don't know if Nick has more. So I go through a purchase or I go through a refi. So for example, when I bought my house, I bought it through Exchange Financial. And within a month, I was making payments to a totally different company. <laughs> How does that work? Yep. That's going back to the, uh, the pooling of the mortgages uh, after closing. And it's funny, I'm familiar with Exchange Financial. When I was in the mortgage broker world prior to 2005, they were my number one go-to because they were an excellent company. And I assume still are. I, I have no knowledge of them since 2005. Uh, but yeah, it goes back to the mortgage pooling. So uh, as far as what we do, where I work, um, we, we're funding the loan at closing. So your mortgage is with Loan Depot. And more than likely, it's going to remain there. Uh, prior to this year with the COVID crisis, I would have told you that your, your loan we reserved the right to sell, but we never did. In fact, we were one of the largest net purchasers of mortgages in 17, 18, and 19, purchasing other people's mortgages um, to, uh, to expand our portfolio. But we have sold some of our mortgages this year to generate capital for the mortgage crisis. You, you got sold? Yeah, I, I, like, I have like 15 mortgages with Chase right now, I swear to God. Um, <laughs> like I... I got a stack of envelopes one day and it was like, chase, 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 chase. And it was like, you know, you would think that if they bought all my mortgages or whatever, it's on you one. Yeah. You know, like it was, you know, <laughs> nope. and, and they would, nope. they would figure they'd get their crap together like really nope. quick. No, it was, it was horrible. Um, nope. but it's really they have well. no clue that, that you have more than one mortgage with them. Yeah. Literally. They have no clue. They, they don't care. I'm just a number to them. So <laughs> Yeah, there was uh, there was a ton of of mortgage servicing transfers this year, um, multiple multiple times, and that was all because of what was going on in the mortgage backed security market and the COVID crisis. Um, I, we we could have a whole session here on uh, on economics and and what was going on there, but the short of it was as soon as COVID hit, and forbearance options were required. Mortgage lenders were required to offer forbearance to uh, to their borrowers. What that meant was a borrower could put their payment off for six months. Might help someone. Uh, I don't know. You have to look at it very, very, very closely because on a forbearance, um, if you took a six month forbearance back in May, upon your seventh month, you are delivering seven payments back to your mortgage lender because you didn't make six payments. Now your seventh month is due. Boom. You need to have seven payments right then day one of month number seven. Ah, is that how that's working? Okay. That's how it works. It doesn't get tacked on. It doesn't get reamortized in. It's not forgiven. It's forbearance for whatever the time frame is. Six months is the common month. Number seven, you better bring six payments plus your current payment. So, so if back in May, you didn't think, hey, in seven months, let's say your payment's a thousand bucks. In seven months, will I have $7,000 to do this? 
If the answer to that is no, don't take the forbearance because you're just kicking the can down the road. You're, you're in trouble. Um, if you're, uh, if you have, you know, 60% loan to value right now, you've been in your house um, and you took the forbearance and don't have the money, feel free to reach out to me. Um, I will <laughs> say, uh, right. These are, these are called foreclosure things. Um, right. Right. So it's, or if uh, you're back working now, call me and we'll look at refinancing. There you go. Yeah, yeah. no, that's, that's, that's a great point. Um, because you can refinance out of that loan. Um, and now, so we talked about purchase pre or purchasing, right? It takes a month to 45 days is what you were saying. How long is a, a taking a little longer right now? It may take 45 to 60 days maximum, depending if, uh, if we're getting appraisals back quickly, unfortunately, Dave refinances are, uh, taking the back burner to purchases. We're still prioritizing purchases, both appraisers, underwriters, and processors. Um, no disrespect, but your refinance, you're going to get processed slower than if you were purchasing. What mortgage lenders have is their channel flow of files. They have refinances, they have purchases, you know, whatever. And this is above my pay grade. So I don't know how they do it, but you know, they may say, Hey, processor work on six purchases today and three refis. And that's their flow or whatever the, the number get the, the gist, not the sure. numbers. So, so refinances are taking longer. Um, some of them, uh, a company that you mentioned, uh, I won't say who, but uh, I know that they were doing 120 day locks on their refinances. That is insane. Chase, how dare you? Um, <laughs> say, uh, you know, say or we, so I had heard, um, you know, I, I lock all my refis within 60 days and we're closing within 60 days, usually about 40, just, 50 days. Um, so, you know, I, I, I enjoy purchasing a home. One thing, you know, we've told people I've worked with you on quite a few. Um, I don't even know how many I have with you, to be honest, seven, something like that. Um, you know, and I get, into, it's funny because I, I have a friend, I don't even want to call him a friend. I have a guy I know who, who happens to be in your game and he told me there's no possibility to get more than four loans, right? And I'm like, you should meet my lender friend. Like, I don't know. How, like he, he's telling me till I'm blue in the face that I don't own more than four mortgages. And I'm just like, all right, hold on. So how many mortgages can I get? How does the, how does that work? Um, and how do I prove to this guy without having to pull out my, uh, oh, sorry, my, my, my wallet and say, hey, this is, <laughs> if you want to look at my debt, here you go. Um, yep. No, that might be coming back to the internal lending requirement where he is at. Um, now, yes, there, there is a limit to how many loans you can get, and that's a bit of a sliding scale depending on what the underlying economics are. That number came down through the mortgage crisis uh, when folks like you and, and I wanted to go out and buy more properties. They may have limited what we could have possibly done back then, uh, and sure. they did because uh, I had many investors that, that I unfortunately wasn't able to finance. Um, but then at the same time, some of those products and programs opened up and allowed more. Uh, so that's a bit of a sliding scale, but uh, no, you can have more than four finance properties right now. Uh, you're going to get into trouble probably when you're in the eight, 10, 12 finance properties. Um, and if they're all with one particular lender, you know, then you might 
meet some risk requirements sure. uh, there. But uh, at, at some point, yeah, you're not able to continue to build your portfolio with the residential mortgage market and you're stepping over to the commercial department. You're doing blanket mortgages across all of your properties. You know, they may take a look and say you have X amount of dollars of equity across all of these properties. So they may issue you a line of credit where you can just go write checks for cash for properties. Um, I hope to work with you to get you to that point someday. And we have that problem. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm at that problem, but uh, that's for another time. Um, yeah. <laughs> say, yeah, I, I fooled, I fooled a few of my places together to open a line of credit for on a commercial loan, uh, oh, which cool. is funny. So uh, just, you know, even about that, right. So you say you don't know anything about commercial. And uh, so back in the day, I was this young cocky kid. No, I was, I was young and naive and so I, you know, I, I went to Rob for a 24 unit or 28 unit. And I was like, Hey, and he goes, I don't know a dang thing about this, but here's this guy. Uh, he, you know, we talked about honor credit union. He goes here, here's this young kid who's doing great things. I hear he's doing well. Um, so Patrick. And so I talked to Patrick back in the day. He's like, yeah, commercial, we can do this. And I've never closed a loan with Patrick. And I've, I've brought so many to him. Um, I've always ended up just putting them under uh, land contracts or other things because, you know, the people, they respect me. Um, and they're like, you know what, here, just, just do it this way. It'll be easier. But, you know, Patrick is now VP of like commercial lending for Honor Credit Union. It's insane. Like yeah. barely answers my phone call, like just pawns me off to somebody else. Um, <laughs> yeah, but wouldn't you? Yeah, of course. I mean, <laughs> so I brought it. But the good thing is he'll answer my phone call once in a while because he knows that usually I'm just calling to bring in millions of dollars of my friends that are trying to refinance their big, big properties. Um, so Rob, uh, do you think there's anything that we missed that you can tell us about? Uh, boy, no. Um, I guess really the going back to, to different lenders, different requirements, overlays, if you're told no, continue to talk to other folks uh, just because just because one bank said no another or a lender like myself or a credit union might not have that same requirement or might not say no uh, especially on different types of credit scores like for instance um on a credit union they were, they were talking about them uh, don't hold me to this but i think their uh credit score requirement is still a 640 you have to have a 640 to qualify to get a mortgage with them where i can do all the way down to 580 Sure. Wow. So, uh, just because one person tells you no, continue your search and talking to other folks because uh, there are lenders out there who have different requirements. I think that's a big tip. Like it, it, anybody that's still listening, yep. I wish we could put this into the beginning. Yep. Well, that's like a huge tip is like you're, you're no might points. not mean no when it comes to mortgages. Yeah. You're 80 points <laughs> different on, on a credit score. Um so if you are if you are getting told no and you're looking for somebody and you just heard kind of what a base credit score that he could do, Rob, how tell more tell people more about you, where they can find you, how you want to be reached. Yep. Uh, Rob Delator with Loan Depot. My office is in St. Joseph, Michigan, and that's where I live. Uh, my number, my phone number is 269-208-2852. And I tell you what, that's the best way. I'll put my email out there as well, but that's the best way to get a hold of me. 208-2852, call, text. Uh, my email address is R-O-Delator. So R-O-D-E-L-A-T-O-R-R-E at loan 
Depot, L-O-A-N-D-E-P-O-T, loan. Boom! Dot com. Yeah. Well, and I, I'm going to make sure this is in all our show notes. So if you're hitting us up on YouTube to see it there, you're going to see Rob's information. If you're listening to the podcast, go to our show notes. We'll we'll have the information there. If you're looking for a loan, definitely get a hold of Rob. I, it worked for me. It's worked for Nick at least, you know, 30 times. Once or twice. Uh, I say, you know, I, Matt, I think appreciate it's, you guys uh, inviting me. This has been fun. Good. Uh, yeah, we really appreciate you had. We really appreciate having you on. We're not going to edit that. It's going to sound great. Um, we don't edit anything. Say, um, you know, it's funny because, you know, I have I have two of your phone numbers, right? Like your personal cell phone and your your business line. And uh, I I think I just give everybody, you know, both of them. I'm like, here, like if it doesn't answer this one, call this one and say Nick sent you. And it's like everybody everybody I talk to that I've given your number to is like holy crap, Rob answers and he calls right back and he answers all my questions. And he, like, even if you don't end up closing a loan with him, you can call Rob and he will, he will pull your credit and say, Hey, this is what I would work on. This is how I would get started. Come back to me in this period of time. Like he sits and says everything that you're going to need to do to be successful. And I, I really respect that out of you. Like I've, I've yeah, sent I you, that. I say, I've sent you uh, way too many people to buy your beautiful house uh, so, but I've also, you know, but I also know that I've sent you some people that you haven't used, um, and, but you've given them so much advice and I get such great feedback. And I know sometimes I don't give you that feedback right away. So, um, as I said, we really appreciate it. Yep. I, I know you've helped me along the way. Um, when you're, when you're done with this, uh, I know it's like eight 30 at night, but go ahead and just start running all my properties for refi. See what you can do for me. <laughs> so, uh, I'll have a text tomorrow morning that says, "Hey Nick, uh, there's nothing I can do." No. So, um, guys, we're gonna, as, as David said, uh, we're gonna put it in the show notes. But as always, like, subscribe, share, hit the little bell thingy, uh, smash the dislike button if you uh, if you hate the beard. Um, and I'll, I'll make fun of you every time, <laughs> but any, you know, how long have you been growing that? Uh, this is officially, this is two years and a month now official. So yeah. Um, I was going to cut it and donate it and do all that, but now it's gotten to the point where it's like, I, I want to keep going see how far I can get this thing. So my wife will be so happy when you shave that. Yeah. It's, not, it's just not going to happen. Like, you know, I keep telling everybody, like, people tell me, hey, you should cut it. And I was like, look, if you donate enough money, like, it's just hair to me. Like, donate enough money. We're going to make it to a good cause and and we'll have a good time of it. So I'm hoping that we get successful enough here on the podcast and, the, and YouTube that we just make this to where people donate a bunch. And, and so if we we'll, cut it, can we make, you know, to pay out of it for to, those of us that are going bald? Because, I mean, I'm I losing said, my hair. Up no, here. Nobody, nobody out here knows that I'm bald under here because I got this golden locks on it. But, um, <laughs> Hey, I, I, I hope you had as much fun as I did. I absolutely love talking about mortgages, um, even yeah. though it costs it costs me money. Um, <laughs> I still love it. So thanks so much for joining us. I'm, I, I, I'm glad you uh, got to partake in a good uh, cider. And uh, guys, uh, if you want a mug, uh, hit us up and uh, we'll figure out a way to get you a Bucks and Brews uh, glass sometime. We want to thank Rochester Mills and Saga Talk. Uh, we know that your sponsorship is is coming. Yeah, Nick. Frankenmuth Brewing. Um, every year I, I give them money, so I hope that they sponsor me someday. Even one, because I mean they know 
As I said, I just bought a case and I should have bought like three because it was such a good special. Yeah, seriously, we will work for beer. <laughs> and it does, it does, you don't have to buy us a 12 pack or anything. We'll work for a beer. Yeah, we're, we're thinking about doing uh, like standing on the corner that says Will Podcast for Beer um, <laughs> just for fun. So, well, I'm putting my order in. I want a glass, but I'm going to personally pick it up from you once this COVID is over and uh, I'm going to bring some beer and we're going to share it together. That's a deal. My man, thanks so much. Thanks again, Rob. We we loved having you. Stick around for a minute because we always talk after this. So right on. Uh, we'll we'll see you guys next week, guys.